Thank you, Alan. Thank you, praise team. Tell you what, I don't know how much comes across on television, but that was uh, really just worshipful. And I'm very much looking forward to everybody at least slowly trickling back. I'm looking forward to this morning. I'm actually looking forward to this evening when uh, we get together and continue this special study that we've been doing on uh, near-death experiences. Uh, and if you haven't been tuning in in the afternoons, I just want you to know you've really been missing something because uh, it's been very well received. What we've been doing on uh, on uh, Sunday afternoons, for basically from 5 o'clock to 6.30, and I can say it's really good and well-received because I'm not actually doing it. I'm just there helping to facilitate some discussion and all the rest. Uh, but it is good, and, and how well-received we had about three, let's see, what was it? I can't even remember. How many was it that we had tuned in live? It was three, 320 devices that were tuned in. That's during the live service. And so that's a lot of people. I don't know how many TVs and, and other devices are being shared at the same time as we're doing this, but it's been very well received. And I really expected that the next Sunday there was going to be a drop-off that was significant. And there was a little bit of drop-off because we started this on Easter Sunday, high attendance Sunday of the year. And uh, most of the time when you start a class, it's very well attended and then it starts dropping off. And so we did drop off, but less than 1%. And so people have been coming. So if you've not been watching these, you're kind of missing a happening here at Main Street Baptist Church. And so what we've decided to do was spend our, our Sundays somewhat paralleling the study of near-death experiences and what comes after life to sort of give some theological and scriptural reinforcement to what we've been talking about on Sunday evenings. And I think this should be obvious enough the relevance of this because you are going to spend and I'm going to spend more time on the other side of eternity than on this side of eternity. So it ought to be obvious enough, but it's not just something that we're thinking about long term. We ought to be thinking about the implications for our lives now with regards to whether or not we have a soul that continues on after this life and another life and where we're going to spend eternity and all the rest. This is incredibly relevant for now. Let let me give you just an example of this. Uh, Back uh, several, several years ago, Susan Sontag passed away. She she was a very famous um, American writer, kind of a, a leftist radical, but very popular, very well-known. And after years in remission, the cancer returned. And when the cancer came back, she fought it with a vengeance. She was desperately struggling against it, so much so that she would just ignore the possibility of, of her death. And so always she was dreaming of and speaking of her recovery, getting out of the hospital and what she was going to do next and, and what she was going to do when she took the reins of her life. And she would just tell people about how she was going to write in a way she'd never written before and how she was going to do things she'd never done before in a way that she'd never done them before and, and how she was excited about the next chapter in her life. And for her, all of a sudden, when cancer became right there in her face again, for her, living was everything, the future was everything, getting productive and being productive, being productive was absolutely everything. And so when she eventually died, her son says she died unreconciled with the possibility of her own extinction. Her son says that basically she took all of her limited energy when she was fighting cancer into this uprising, this revolt against death. But eventually she lost. And when she lost, she felt like she had literally lost everything. Her son says that that basically weeping and panicked, eventually she let her nurse know that she was dying with the obvious implication that the whole thing was absurd and pointless. 
Her son, later reflecting on, on his mother, uh, basically her body buried in a graveyard in Paris beside other famous writers, her son reflected upon her life and basically said all of her hope, her, her singular hope, was located in medical data, scientific data, and the prescriptions given to her by doctors. And so when she died, she felt like she lost everything. And, and as he's reflecting and concluding, he says, unless you believe in spirits, unless a person believes in the Christian fairy tale of resurrection, his words, then when a person dies, they don't exist anymore. When a person dies, they don't exist anymore, and they will never, ever exist again. And from a certain angle, her son is right, from a certain angle. But what if the soul continues to exist? Okay, What if the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection is more than a hopeful hope? What if there is a rock-solid foundation for the hope that we hold dearly? What if the Scripture teaches with great clarity about the existence of the soul after this life? What, what if the things that we believe are actually credible and believable? I, I trust that everybody here and everybody watching is going to recognize what we're talking about is highly relevant. Because, again, we're going to spend more time on the other side than on this side if, in fact, Jesus is correct, if, in fact, the Bible is correct, that we have souls that go on after our bodies die. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in where we left off last week. We were just talking about the soul. We began talking about the soul. So before we get into the depths of the soul, so to speak, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going to read just a couple of scriptures here before we dive in. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, and then Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. For what does it profit a man to gain the world, the whole world, and forfeit his soul? See, your soul is worth more than the world but you can forfeit it. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You don't just have a soul, you are a soul. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as I did last week, just real quickly, I'm going to summarize what the Bible teaches in a nutshell about the soul before we dive into some of the depths. And in a nutshell, what the Bible teaches is you have a soul, you've been created specifically in the image of God, uniquely created. And at the point of death, when your breath leaves your body and then your body decays, your soul still remains. It it goes on. It continues. And your soul is not just worth more than the whole world to you. It's worth the world to God. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become, as the Bible says, a life-giving spirit so that he could breathe life back into our souls because we can forfeit our souls and we forfeit our souls when we sin, when we commit cosmic treason, when we act as if we're sovereign over our lives and not actually God. But the good news is because of Jesus Christ, because he lived the life he should have lived, died the death he should have died, there is forgiveness that is available and your soul can be saved all the way to the point where you breathe your last. That's what the Bible teaches in a nutshell. And we saw last week that Jesus affirmed and reaffirmed the overall Bible teaching concerning the soul, that you actually have a soul, that there is more to you than meets the eye. And if Jesus is, in fact, correct in what he teaches, then, of course, there's an afterlife, because if you have a soul that goes on after your body dies, then, of course, by definition, there is an afterlife. So we're going to be talking some more about the soul, and I, and I have to tell you, I'm excited about this. 
uh, because of its incredible uh, relevance for you and for me. But there are lots of questions that people do have when they're thinking about about the soul. And one of the questions that comes up from people uh, time to time, from time to time, who are very astute with regards to reading the Bible is, hey, isn't the whole idea of the soul kind of a New Testament thing, a later development? It's not in the Old Testament. It's only in the New Testament. Isn't this kind of a man-made doctrine but not actually revealed by God? And the reason people will say things like this is because, actually, the uh, the idea of the soul is not as plain in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, okay? So that there's some thinking underneath the question, and the thinking beneath the question is, well, if God doesn't divinely reveal this in the Old Testament, here's what we know about history. The Greeks, like Socrates, Plato, talked about the soul existing after the body, that the soul is imprisoned in the body. And so this whole idea of the soul living on is a Greek idea. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, during the intertestamental period, Greek philosophy influenced the Jews, but it didn't really come from God. This is just a man-made thing. So is it really taught in the Old Testament? And the answer to that question is, well, yeah, actually, this is taught in the Old Testament. God reveals the nature of the soul, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And so depending on the particular passage that you're referring to, and depending on the particular philosophers that you're pointing to, here's what we know. We know that that God reveals in the Bible some 800 to 500 years, the ongoing existence of the soul. Uh, really, um, before the time of Christ, well before uh, the philosophers who were influencing all of this. That's why, by the way, this whole thing of, well, is it really taught that clearly in the Bible, in the Old Testament? That's why in Jesus' day, there were these people called Sadducees who were the original materialist, monistic materialists who believed that the soul doesn't go on after death. The reason that Jesus... Uh, debates with them is because there is this concern that maybe the soul doesn't exist after life. Maybe all you have is just this one whole person, and when the person dies, they don't continue to exist beyond that. But the Bible does teach clearly that the soul exists beyond that particular point of death. Jesus, for example, takes the the people in his time to the Old Testament. But just before we get to strong arguments, let me just kind of mention this. Frequently, when people are talking about, well, doesn't the Bible teach that the existence of the soul of the Old Testament? They will look at the number of times that the word soul appears in the Old Testament and say, well, it's all over the place. In fact, the Hebrew word nefesh, which is translated soul, occurs in the Old Testament like 754 times. So it's all over the place. But that does not in and of itself demonstrate anything because the word nefesh, which is translated as soul, can simply mean a living thing or a living creature. It can even be translated throat. So the first times that the word nefesh actually occurs in the Bible, it's actually talking about animals or animal life. In Genesis chapter 1, the first time that it, that it occurs, it's, it's referring to the creatures of the sea. And then the next time it refers to the large creatures of the sea. Then the next time it's referring to animal life. And then when it's used again, it's referring to the birds of the air as well as the animals that creep and crawl along the face of the earth. And so just because you see the word soul all over the place in the Old Testament does not in and of itself mean that we're, that we exist after our, our physical life is over. It could just be translated throat. It could just be translated a living breath or it could just be translated anything that has, has life. That's why in Jesus' day you have these materialists like the Sadducees who say you just, there is no afterlife. You just, you die and then that's it. 
Jesus, though, points to the Old Testament in particular when he's debating with the Pharisees and we, or the Sadducees. We saw this last week when we, we saw Jesus bring up this very old passage, this very old text that was very well respected. It's when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And it's when God gives his name, you know, I'm, I'm Yahweh, I am. And so this is a very prominent text and a very well-respected passage, and it's very old. And Jesus points to it in Luke chapter 20, verses 37 through 38. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus is pointing to this text, demonstrating to these people who didn't believe in the afterlife, there is an afterlife, because God's not a God of the dead, but of the living. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and of Jacob, and all live to him. And this argument was so strong to the Sadducees that they stopped arguing. They stopped debating. They didn't have anything to say in response. And so what we have in this one passage is an example of Jesus referring specifically to the Old Testament as as an evidence that the soul continues to exist long after the body is dead. So even though God formed Adam from the ground, breathes the breath of life into him, and the whole of Adam becomes a living soul, that doesn't mean that at the point of physical death the soul does not continue to exist. No, Jesus says, no, it does. They continue to live. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were long since physically dead when Jesus was making this teaching, but he said, they live, they live, they exist, they're alive right now because God's not a God of the dead, but of the living. Now, there are other passages in the Old Testament that very clearly demonstrate that the soul goes on after this life in another world. For example, there are straightforward passages that forbid the practice of necromancy. Okay, this is communication with the dead, summoning the dead, consultation with the dead. And so, for example, you have Isaiah rebuking the people of Judah when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Here, he is holding the people of Israel to the law that forbid the practice of consulting spiritists and mediums for the purpose of consulting or reaching out to the dead. Now, there are some, they're going to look at this passage and they're going to say, wait a second, um, that what what is all that about well god is forbidding a practice that is obviously tempting to the people of israel you're not going to be tempted to consult a spiritist or a medium if you believe that the dead aren't actually there to be reached and consulted the jews believed that the departed spirits the departed souls could in fact be contacted that's why god forbids the practice because the people believe that it would be the case. And my dad one time told me, son, do you really think that God is going to forbid a practice that isn't dangerous? Do you think God would actually speak against consulting mediums and spiritists and reaching out to the dead and communicating with the dead and the occult? You think God would really warn against that and forbid that practice if there weren't actually anything to it? Now, there have been those who said, well, the only reason God is forbidding that practice is because it was widespread among the neighbors of Israel. And so God just simply telling them, don't participate in the religions of the Canaanites. But still, the Israelites would not have even been tempted to do these things if they didn't believe that there wasn't something to them, if they didn't believe that the souls actually existed to be consulted and communicated with. This only fits. The temptation for necromancy only fits with people who are convinced that the dead still live only in another place. 
There is this very graphic example in the Old Testament of necromancy, of the actual successful conjuring of the dead. It's, it's a rather famous text in 1 Samuel where King Saul goes to the witch at Endor and she summons the spirit of Samuel, the, the prophet. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting passage, and, and I'm going to read this for you. This is over in... Um, 1 Samuel chapter 28, starting with verse 11. As the story goes, now let me just set this up for you. As the story goes, King Saul has already kicked out the, the witches and the spiritists and the mediums from the land because it's a forbidden practice. But Samuel at this particular point in his life is feeling very low. He's been rejected by God as the king. He is in utter despair. And as the king, he knows the difference between the charlatans and the ones that are real and the ones who have a good reputation and the ones who don't. And so he goes for the one that he's heard the most about. He goes with the most reputable one. That's what kings do. So he goes to this woman in Endor and he asks her to bring up, that's how the text puts it, bring up Samuel. And she succeeds. And the king asks, what do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, what does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. Now, of course, we can take that text and we can try to explain it away by simply saying, well, that was just an hallucination. The woman just had an hallucination. And then, of course, King Saul shares in the hallucination. Uh, and, and maybe that's all that's going on here. And some other people have tried to explain the text away by simply saying, well... You know, the whole point of the text is simply to communicate how desperate King Saul actually is. Nothing really, this isn't really communicating anything about the dead. Now, having said that, the majority of people who are interpreters will just run with the straightforward teaching, since this appears to be a very straightforward narrative, that here what we have in the Old Testament is a straightforward example of an effective conjuring of a spirit in spite of the fact that the Old Testament itself condemns the practice. Now, this is kind of weird, and I have to tell you, I, you would expect that it's going to be weird because we're talking about the afterlife, and so, of course, it's going to get a little weird, but, but I have to tell you, I think it's weird in a cool sort of way, and I know as kids, we like things that are cool in weird sorts of ways. And so I have to tell you, Mark, when I was a teenager, I was, te- I was one of those people that was tempted in middle school to play with the Ouija boards and do the seances and all the stuff. Because my friends were into that. I don't know if that's still a thing or not. If it was that a thing in your time, I mean, it was a thing in South Texas. Santeria was a big deal and all the rest. And so I had friends that did little seances and they would play the Ouija board. And, and, and my dad just told me, say, hey, God wouldn't, God wouldn't warn against something like that if there wasn't something to it, if there wasn't actually a danger. And so it got me to thinking. So as I was thinking about the soul in the Old Testament, it, you know, supporting the idea of the soul and all the Israelites believing in the existence of the soul in another world and necromancy and all the rest. I, I had to talk to David Morris. Now, for those of you who don't know, David Morris is a missionary. He served in Africa on the continent for some, I think, 26 years, over a quarter of a century in a couple of different countries. And so I asked him about this. I said, well, so tell me about spiritism and mediums and all the rest that's going on in Africa because there are witch doctors and some of them are simply herbalists, but a lot of them, they do specialize in contacting the dead and the spirit world and all the rest. And he confirmed not only is that a real common practice continually in in the continent of Africa, but also 
he said, there's got to be something to it. And uh, he told me some stories, and I can't share all the stories, but one of the things that he shared with me is on the continent of Africa, it's not just the charismatic churches that practice exorcisms. Baptist churches in Africa practice exorcisms about as commonly, and these are his words, as commonly as we practice the Lord's Supper. You know why that's the case? Here, here's at least one possibility. I think part of the reason that's the case is when people frequently seek contact with their ancestral spirits, with grandma, grandpa, or whatever lies on the other side, when you open yourself up to that, not just in moments, but as a culture on the whole, you're opening yourself up to more than what you're commonly bargaining for. Now, I can kind of feel some of you out there thinking, yeah, okay, we're all sophisticated now. We're 21st century Americans, and, and we've grown up, and you know how Africans are. You know, we're Americans, and Okay, just just for a second. Let's be real careful to not only take the Bible seriously, but let's be real careful not to be guilty of cultural snobbery or chronological snobbery. Snobbery is not sophistication. Snobbery is just snobbery. So you look back and look down on your great-great-grandparents or you look down on people from another continent simply because they're from another continent or not your own culture. That's just snobbery. Be careful. Besides that, let me just encourage you to think for for just a second. Think about it like this. If 80% of Americans, 4 out of 5 Americans, believe that there's a God, which that's apparently the statistic, let's just suppose you're in the majority there and also about 4 out of 5 believe in the afterlife. 4 out of 5 people who believe in God, believe in the afterlife, let's suppose you're like those people and you believe that God is spirit and he spans all of reality and he's got one foot on this side of the Jordan and another foot on this side of the Jordan, one on this side of reality and another over here, and you actually believe that at the point of death the soul leaves the body and goes to the other side, why would you necessarily believe that it's impossible for spirits on this side to come back to this side, especially if people on this side build a bridge and invite that into their lives? Why would you think that's just radically impossible? Listen, God warns against this kind of stuff for a reason. And so if you ever get tempted like I was as a kid to participate in the occult, Seances, even if you think you're just playing around or Ouija boards and all the rest, do something that is less dangerous by comparison, like buy a tiger or trust, you know, a communist dictator or something. You know, that people are into that right now. Just don't practice the occult. But aside from all of that, when we take this particular passage seriously as a biblical narrative as the Bible presents it to be, there are several things that we can learn with regards to the nature of the soul. Uh, the first thing that is clear is this. There is a continuity of personal identity between the living and the dead. In other words, dead Samuel is still, still Samuel. Uh, this is not a copy of something else. This is not something else or someone else. This, isn't a, uh, this ghost is not a copy of Samuel. This is Samuel. There's co- continuity of personal identity and consciousness. The second thing that we notice is Samuel is a typical resident of the other side because he, he says, look, you, you, King Saul, and your sons, you're going to join me. You're going to come to my side. Now, this wouldn't even make sense if the appearance of Saul was somehow atypical or somehow a, a, a moment of suspended animation where God gets involved in a unique way for this one extraordinary moment. No, Samuel says, you're going to be with me right where I am, like I am, on the other side tomorrow. The third thing is activity is still in principle possible For the dead, even if they are usually asleep, even though Samuel is implying that maybe he was asleep or resting, 
At the very least, he was able to wake up and be involved in activity, and he's able to actually actively communicate with King Saul in a way that is completely sentient, completely uh, with his mind present. And actually, there's even this implication that in the middle of all this, Samuel, the prophet, has been somewhat aware of what has been going on in Saul's life and the other world. That's why Samuel can say with absolute certainty, tomorrow you're going to be judged. Tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me because it seems like he's aware of what's going on in King Saul's world and that's why he's able, as the continual prophet of God, even from the other side, to speak on behalf of God what's going to happen in the life of King Saul. There's something else I think that is interesting here too, and that is Samuel is a ghost or a shade. That is to say, he's not a Platonic soul or a Cartesian mind. He's not just purely immaterial. For Plato, the soul was just immaterial. It was not discernible to the human senses. The soul did not have any bodiliness to it. It was non-spatial. But here... What we have in Samuel is the ability to make himself visible, to appear in a certain bodiliness, certainly enough bodiliness to be standing in the presence, certainly enough to be immediately recognizable, and certainly enough for him to be heard and understand and have a conversation. So this all brings us to something that I kind of brought up last week, and that is when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about what the Bible reveals about the soul and the body, the soul and the body are absolutely very thoroughly tied together. The, the soul for the body, the body for the soul. And the only time the soul ever leaves the body is at the point of physical death. There's a bodiliness uh, to the soul. It's important. And on occasion, when the, bod- when the body and the soul separate because of death and the soul is seen or presented or visualized, it's always in some kind of corporeal bodily form where it can be seen or heard but not necessarily touched, not necessarily solid, but still in some general way, visible, hearable, somehow discernibly present or bodily. Now, this is not the only occasion in the Bible where we see an example of this. You go over to the New Testament, and rather famously, you have Jesus who's on top of this mount. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus is joined by Elijah and Moses. But Elijah and Moses do not have resurrection bodies because Jesus hasn't been resurrected from the dead and Jesus hasn't returned for the final judgment where there's going to be this grand resurrection. We'll have resurrection bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. But nonetheless, Elijah and Moses appear and the disciples who are present see it and they see them talking with Jesus and it's so visible that they want to build a little shrine to this moment. So you got Samuel. Then you've got in the New Testament, Elijah, and you've got Moses. And if you want to look at some other images, you can go over to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, there's this occasion where there are these souls that are underneath the altar and they're crying out to God for God to make all things right. And you kind of wonder, why are the souls under the altar? Well, one of the reasons that they're under the altar is for even martyrs, those who have even died for God, you know, like the best of the best, they're really committed, they still need to be covered. Nobody can be their own altar or their own covering. Even the best of the best, even those who die for Jesus, have to be under the altar. They have to be under his sacrifice. But here they are pictured under the altar, but they're crying out for justice. And they're also pictured bodily, and they're also wearing these white robes. And so even with the imagery in Revelation, you see a a certain bodiliness or a certain form to spirits. This is pretty consistent in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, all the way up to the book of Revelation. And what is so interesting in all of this is this helps to make sense of a conversation that Jesus has with the disciples after he's resurrected from the dead. 
You might remember there's occasion where he appears to the disciples and they're not so sure if they're seeing a ghost or if this is really, you know, Jesus standing in front of them, you know, full bodily. And here's what Jesus says. He says, look at my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, because a spirit, the word here is pneuma, which is sometimes can be the same as the soul. Because a spirit, what? Does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus is letting them know, you don't just see me, you don't just hear me like you might expect from a spirit. No, I got more. You can touch me. I'm solid. I got flesh and bones. So Jesus in this very conversation is assuming of the disciples what they all are believing, and that is when it comes to the spirit, the departed spirit, it's somewhat bodily. This is real consistent. Now, some of you are going, okay, well, that's all kind of interesting, but... Uh, who cares about all this? Thank you, Ernest, for talking about Nefesh. Fantastic. I, I love that. Good. Uh, souls, you know, can appear in bodily form. Well, that's wonderful. Are we just going to be weird and then we're closing? Well, no. There's actually some practical application here, okay? Uh, there's a couple of things that I want you to take away from, from what the Bible teaches about the soul, especially as it pertains to what we've talked about today. And the first thing is this. The picture that the Bible presents of the departed dead still being conscious, somewhat bodily, easily recognizable and capable of communication fits perfectly with the testimonies of those who've had near-death experiences. Listen, the the testimonies of people who've had near-death experiences do not fit with reincarnation. They do not fit with other religious texts. They fit with the Bible. They don't fit with Platonism. They don't fit with the Cartesian mind. They don't fit with materialism, monistic materialism, all the rest. You know what those testimonies fit with uniquely? The Bible. Now, this doesn't prove that the Bible is true, and it doesn't prove that all the testimonies of near-death experiences are true. But if you're going to believe the testimonies, and if you're going to believe the Bible, you expect for them to match up perfectly, and they do. That's kind of interesting. See, most most near-death experiences... Almost all of them have this as a component. I came out of my body at the point of death and I was looking down at my body, but there's still a bodiliness to them. They'll talk about I was being taken by the hand or my feet were riding a wave of light or I fell to my knees. Even though they're out of the body, consistently the people who have these experiences still have these experiences as a body. That doesn't fit with reincarnationism. That does not fit with a whole host of religions. It fits with the Bible. And, and so there's also these immediate recognizabilities. You know, when people have these testimonies, they go, oh, I saw him or I saw her. And I kind of think it's going to work like this. I'm going to one day, you know, when I die, I'm going to be going to the Lord. And I think I'm going to see Ray Young. And I'm going to go, hey, that's Ray. And he looks good. He doesn't look like he used to look, but he looks good. And I didn't expect, I didn't expect him to be making coffee, but he looks good and, and that's Ray. And, and you kind of go, Hey, there's, there's Jean or Hey, there's grandma. And they don't look like they did, but they do. But you know them immediately. You get that in the new Testament. You know, King Saul recognizes Samuel. Everybody recognizes Elijah and Moses. And they might not have even seen Elijah and Moses before, but there's this instant recognition. What's going on in all of this? Did Jesus later explain it? Well, the interesting thing about these near death experiences is people know 
these people, even though they may be different, maybe they look younger, maybe they're wearing different clothes, or maybe they're beaming light. There's just immediate recognition, and there's communication, and there's, and there's bodyliness. This fits with the testimony of Scripture. So, yes, that doesn't prove the Bible, and it doesn't prove near-death experiences, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna say, hey, there's like, you know, some 3,500 well-documented cases, studied cases of near-death experiences, and these all have a consistency, and isn't it interesting that these testimonies match up with the testimony of Scripture in the way that they don't match up with anything else? Common sense is gonna tell you, hey, maybe there's something to this. And if there is a religion out there that claims to reveal the truth about what lies on the other side or what comes next, I'm going to go with the the one that's based on the book that matches up with all of these well-documented, well-studied cases. It just, that kind of makes sense. There's another, I think, very practical takeaway from all of this, and that is thinking about your future in terms that go beyond Most people's long-range planning really makes a lot of sense. Uh, And here's what I mean by this. Uh, Like most of you, make sure I'm staying on time, like most of you, I have watched a lot of TV lately, probably more than I should, and I get to see on TV people going, well, you should have been better prepared, and you should have been better prepared, and, you know, the state should have been prepared. No, the federal government should have been prepared. No, you know, the individual should have been prepared, and... You know, I get a little bit tired of that, and here's kind of what I've determined. I don't think anybody knew exactly what was coming. I don't think anybody knew exactly how to prepare, and I don't think anybody knew exactly what was at stake. We're still learning about the implications of decisions we've made. We're still learning about the disease. Most of the times in life, you don't know exactly what's coming. You don't know exactly how to plan. You don't know exactly what's at stake, but sometimes you do. You know what's coming? Here's one thing we know with absolute certainty that's coming. Death. And if you don't recognize that, then that is the darkest of blindness. Plan on it. You know with 100% certainty that last I checked, the death rate's hovering right around 100%. You know what's coming for you. How do you prepare for it? Well, the Bible tells us how to prepare for it. Uh, Romans tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There, there it is. That, that's how you prepare. You, you turn to Jesus. You trust in Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That's how you prepare. What's at stake? Well, here's what's at stake. Your soul. And, and how silly, really, when you know what's coming, you know how to prepare, how silly to just kind of put that off and blow that off until the final moment, until after your soul leaves your body and that's when you're going to give this serious thought. That's not a, that's not a good plan. The federal government's not going to bail you out. The state's not going to bail you out. In fact, your, your parents' faith, your grandparents' faith, that's not going to bail you out. This is, this is on you. The Bible tells us, Hebrews tells us, it's appointed to People wants to die, and after this, judgment. You don't wait until your soul leaves your body to start giving serious thought to this. That's terrible planning. So if at any point you start going, yeah, the president should have, or the governor should have, or the local government should have, or the New York governor should have, or this mayor should have, and blah, 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 blah. Hey, you know what's coming. You know how to plan. Why haven't you prepared if you haven't? Come on. I I love the story, or at least I appreciate the story, of the guy who made a lot of money, 
did well in business. And he told his wife, I'm going to take it with me. And she said, it doesn't work that way. And he said, watch. So we got a bunch of cash, put it in a briefcase, took the briefcase up to the attic, put the briefcase on the floor with the handle facing up. And his wife said, what are you doing? And he said, well, when I die, I'm going to grab that thing on the way up. And she said, that's not how it works. And he said, you'll see. So sure enough, eventually he died of a heart attack. After the funeral, the, the wife goes up into the attic and you know what she saw? The briefcase still there with the handle up. She picked it up, took it downstairs, and she just was shaking her head saying, I told him it wasn't going to work. I told him it wasn't going to work. He should, he should have put that down in the basement, not in the attic. And, uh, you know, that's a little funny from a, from a distance, but, you know, you don't give, you don't give passing thought to what's going to happen after your soul leaves your body. You prepare in advance. Now, here's the good news. The good news is we don't have to guess at what's next. We have confirmation from the scripture that all of this is true. It fits. The one who died on your behalf and my behalf, he rose again from the dead. And he said, this is, this is true. And God with great clarity told us, here's how you prepare. And here's what's at stake. You can be with me for all eternity or you can turn your back on me for all eternity. One is heaven, one is hell. Nobody has to go there if they don't want to. The choice is yours, but you, you, you get, you better get prepared. And so for some of you out there, I'm just thinking, you know, you, you need to do business. Do, do you know that you have forfeited your soul? If you have sinned, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, you need forgiveness. Your soul needs saving. The Bible says God himself made a way. You don't cover for yourself. It doesn't matter how good you are, even if you die for God in some respect or another. It doesn't matter. You need covering. You need to be under the altar of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. You need to be under Christ and what he's done for you. So in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to prepare long range past your retirement to the point of death. And Jesus died and was obedient to God even to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. Why would anybody not take advantage of what was done for them? I mean, it's free. It's a gift. Let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for the clarity that your word gives us concerning our nature, our eternity, what comes next. And, and we do want to be well prepared. But you, we know death's coming. That's obvious. And it sure seems that there must be something to the Bible and to Jesus because what the Bible teaches on so many different fronts just matches up with our experiences and the experiences of other people. And, and, and graciously you have communicated, I have all that you need. All you need to do is receive it. And it's not just a respirator or some mass. I, I want to give you life and life eternal if you just believe. So every head bowed here, every eye closed, just this is just you and God, wherever you are. If you're just ready to say yes to God, you just say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I, I know that I need forgiveness because I've done wrong. And it's not just that I did wrong accidentally. I did it knowing it was wrong. And, and, and even in the things that I did right, I just, I just thought I was in control of my own life and I thumbed my nose at you. I, I've been acting like God and a lot of times really falling short and messing up.
I know I need forgiveness. But I also know, God, that you have made forgiveness possible. You're a perfect father. But forgiveness isn't an abstract idea. It's a specific, concrete reality. And and you have given me forgiveness over your son's broken body and shed blood. And so, God, I, I want to right now turn from my sin and selfishness, just repent of that, say I'm sorry, but also trust in Christ as my Savior and Lord. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving my soul. I know I've not earned it. You've just given it, and I receive it. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.